Welcome to Mom Fashions, an honest discussion about the beauty and burden of motherhood. I'm Emily. And I'm Beth. And we hope these next few minutes encourage, inspire, and remind you that we are all in this together. This is Mom Fashions, a Fort Worth Moms production. Episode 48, Parenting the Anxious Child. Hi friends, Beth here. I'm hopping on before we start this episode because I wanted to give you a little disclaimer. Emily and I work really, really hard to create content that is excellent both in what's in it and how it sounds. And this episode, we had some serious technical difficulties, but rather than scrapping it, we decided that we're just going to kind of swallow our pride and let you hear it because our interview with today's guest was just excellent in and of itself. So please bear with us and enjoy today's episode. Hello, Mom Fashions listeners. We are so excited that a friend of ours has joined us today. Emily and I are back in the studio, and today we have special guest, Dr. Kristen Criado. She works at Malama Behavioral Health, and she is a licensed clinical psychologist, and she actually specializes in pediatric psychology. So Emily and I are very excited to have her here today because we have so many questions for her. Yay! And we love having people who know what they're talking about. Essentially, this is what I do. I, we just find guests to come on to help us with our own issues. Yes. So we're sorry, but <laughs> this, is what, this is what you're in for yes. today. We're like, what free advice can, can we get? Can we here? get here? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so hi, Kristen. Welcome. Would you uh, just let us know a little bit about yourself? Yes. Well, thank you both for having me today. I'm really happy to be here. So I've been a clinical psychologist for over 10 years and working with kids, teens and adults with anxiety is a particular specialty and passion of mine. I'm also a mom, so I've really been enjoying listening to mom fashions. I have an almost seven year old boy and an almost three year old girl. As our listeners probably know um, Emily and I both deal with anxiety in our children um, mm-hmm. and personally yep. uh, in, in various ways. Yes. And so bringing you here is, is a little bit personal, um, but we also know that it's timely because the pandemic has really brought out anxiety in, um, in a lot of ways, but especially in kids as their schedules and their, Um, their routines have just been disrupted. Mm -hmm. And so I think my first question for you is just, do kids experience real anxiety? So the simple answer is yes. And not only do kids experience anxiety, but it is a normal feeling that everybody has. So we have all kinds of feelings. We're happy, sad, mad, disgusted, excited, overwhelmed, eager, anxious, nervous, worried. And so in that sense, kids and everyone experience anxiety. Yeah, like my um, my oldest daughter has an official diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder. And that also goes hand in hand with her ADHD disorder. 
and she has um, an adjustment disorder. And we, her psychiatrist is thinking that she may, you know, kind of fit the criteria for reactive attachment disorder. So like all of those I know have similar symptoms and kind of like interweave together. So yes, everybody has anxiety, but sometimes it, anxiety then goes into an area where it, it doesn't, our brains don't behave with anxiety like they're supposed to. Yeah, because like you're saying, anxiety is an emotion and we all have different mm-hmm. feelings and emotions. So can you give us just a very broad layman's definition of anxiety? So anxiety may present as being nervous, scared, or worried. Just as a regular feeling can present as being nervous about something that's going to happen in the future, being worried about yourself or family members and it can present both as thoughts as well as as feelings when it presents as feelings it can be the state of overwhelmed or discomfort but it can also present physically so some of the physical signs of anxiety are real really common ones especially in kids include headache or stomach ache body tension heart racing like palpitations Um, feeling like their skin is crawling or that there's a weight on them. And these feelings and thoughts lead to anxious behaviors, whether it's being irritable, whiny, acting out, retreating, hiding from the thing that's making them nervous. And then the difference between that being anxiety and what is clinical levels of anxiety or Um, diagnosable anxiety is when it begins to impair different areas of functioning in your life. So if that anxiety is overwhelming, if that anxiety is preventing you from going to um, a friend's birthday party, going on a school field trip, going into the school building, doing things with your family, being able to engage with your friends, those are some of the things where we distinguish what is anxiety that everybody experiences as a feeling versus when is it anxiety like a potentially a disorder? The older that my children get, the clearer that becomes to me. And also that has to do with the fact that I get more experience parenting children who are on different spectrums when it comes to anxiety. So my younger daughter would not be a child who would have like a clinical kind of diagnosis. But yes, she still experiences anxiety. Things upset her. Things make her nervous. How it started to present itself in my older daughter's life was being too afraid to go up our stairs or refusing to go outside to play unless a lot of conditions were met. She didn't like the way her anxiety was dictating her life, but the way she knew to fix it was to try to make control and rules. We have been in a process of um, like seeking support and help for her and now have um, a medication that I mean, she has, you know, other diagnoses as well that have not been as easily managed, but literally the fourth day after we had her on anxiety reducing medication, like we started to see just 
a massive difference, just of a level of like peace and like contentment in her inner person, like that controlling and those fears just like, you know, melted away. And like you, you can't, you can't parent your way out of clinical anxiety. So I have been super grateful for, you know, professionals like you and for medication options that can just help these kiddos not have to work so hard to just live their lives. Yeah. What's a great relief about that medication is it takes her anxiety that may have been on a scale of zero or one to 10 from a nine or a 10 down to maybe a five. And so she still experiences anxiety, but she's able to have it live in a manageable place. And that's really where your parenting skills or the therapist exercises and coping skills can come into play. Anxiety really likes to take us on a roller coaster ride. And when we're exposed to something that makes us nervous or uncomfortable, going outside by herself, a school test, a dog, a neighbor's dog, our anxiety likes to spike really very quickly. And those accommodations that you were talking about, we call them sometimes accommodations, but the rules and the ways to quickly relieve the anxiety make it just drop all the way down to a one, two or zero. And then the next time she's exposed to that, it shoots all the way up again. And what we do in therapy, and I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but the goal is for us to be able to be in a place where we get more and more comfortable and more and more practiced with being uncomfortable in anxiety. So when you have that spike in anxiety and you practice staying there and it slowly starts to come down, you learn that you can handle it. And what the medication does is gives her her starting point a little bit lower so she can manage that slow kind of riding that wave of anxiety and just kind of staying in that moment until she can learn that she's safe. Right. That's such a good explanation. Thank you. Thank you for your words. You're welcome. (laughs) That, uh, because I think so many parents are kind of afraid of walking towards the medical route, right? Like giving their children medicine. And, um, I don't know what the decision looked like for you guys, but I know a lot of parents will put that off as long as possible, um, partially because there's some stigma behind mm-hmm. mental illness and medicating. Yeah, and- but it, it's also confusing. I mean, at yeah. least for me, like, because a, a lot of clinical anxiety, it's hard to differ, differentiate mm-hmm. in adults. <laughs> but like when you're really young, I mean, kid, you know, of course kids are scared. You may be scared of going upstairs by yourself when you're little. It's dark. You have no grown-ups up there with you. You know, that's that's not like a preposterous notion, you know. So she has probably had generalized anxiety disorder from the moment she was born, right? It's the way she was kind of made. But we couldn't really ascertain until she got older, like in second and third grade, when we started to see that maybe she should be kind of maturing out of some of these issues, but we also saw those issues increasing Mm -hmm. and they became more paralytic to her just enjoying her life. And then that trickles down to our family. So that is a great question. Like, what would you say to the mom who is just unsure? She knows that her kid 
may have higher than average issues with anxiety, but when is it just regular run of the mill being a human? Mm -hmm. And when should a mom say, we might need to get evaluated? So there's three categories that I think of, and really it's more of a continuum. So I don't mean to say your kid is in A, B, or C, but when I look at the spectrum of how kids deal with fears and what kid don't we know that, you know, we know so many kids who've been afraid of the dark, but they all handle it differently. And they, some are scared of the dark or scared of someone being upstairs for a longer period or for a shorter period, or it impairs them more or impairs them less. And I think of the kids who are kind of not too hesitant to try things and just run up the stairs and don't really think twice about it. Then I think of the kids that are kind of in between who are more sensitive, more aware, more observant. And then the kids who are, as you said, really paralyzed by that. And so for the kids who are really paralyzed, I would say if it's interfering with activities in their daily life or things that are fun or things that they wanna pursue or areas that you need them to function and do well, like school, those are defi- that's definitely a key time to look into talking to your pediatrician, a psychologist, another mental health provider, a psychiatrist, those types of people. So these kids who are in between, we are now looking at literature referring to these kids as being highly sensitive. And I think that's something that you guys have mentioned before, but that's about 15 to 20% of people. And so kids who are highly sensitive are those who are really deep thinkers. They're very conscientious, they're very observant. So they notice every little shadow Whereas one of my kids would run up the stairs and not even have a clue that anything is different or that anything is darker or that there's a movement of a shadow of a tree outside, the other one would notice it right away. So kids who are highly sensitive are more often easily overwhelmed. They're more aware of things. They're more sensitive to their own feelings and other people's feelings. They have kind of heightened senses. So when you think about like that fear of the dark, it feels different on their skin. It looks different in their eyes. Things smell stronger. So their information from their environment is more intense. Whereas, you know, my other kid is like, doesn't notice these things at all. So the kids who are highly sensitive may have more tendencies to being anxious. It doesn't mean that they're all going to have anxiety disorders, but it's just something to be aware of that that's nothing wrong. That's a temperament. That's a style. And so sometimes you you may want to get some extra help and tools and ideas for how to parent and support a highly sensitive kid who may not need therapy per se, but might need a little boost in For you, when you feel this way, when you feel this intense, how do you handle it? Whereas another person might just not feel intense about it at all. Right. This this is actually, I'm like chuckling inside as you were saying this, because I immediately think about like my daughter who does have GAD, how she has made like comments to me about like even the art that we may have on a wall, like she has a painting in her room that's like a, it's kind of impressionist style of like a vase with flowers. Then there's some other paintings like in her dining room and stuff. And she note like she notices things about them. Like she know well, don't you think that it looks like Curious George is in there? And then she calls that painting George all the time. You know, like, and she, you know, like 
so I get what you're saying because when she is like in her room alone at night, she has studied the painting that is in there. And it, you know, it's like, she's so much more sensitive to what's been moved, what is changing, you know, and that was kind of where that control came in. Like she was more aware of all those things. And so she was trying to correct them. If it was something that maybe she didn't like or made her uncomfortable. For me with my daughter, she's had these moments of severe anxiety, but they've always been attached to some kind of circumstance or event like a test in school or, you know, I remember when we went from from first grade to second grade, they changed the discipline methods. So instead of like three blocks that they took away one at a time, she only had two or something. Oh, yeah. And so she was like, oh no, well, she'd never lost a block ever. Right. But for her, it was it just was the like, idea. Yeah. That she was going to lose it. And so she's had these moments that have truly been kind of paralyzing where she will, I mean, when we were doing online school, she would just shut off her computer and run to her room and cry. Or there was one day where she refused to go in the school building because she was afraid she was going to lose a block um, if she went to school. And so, but these have been moments that have been kind of spread out. And it's been really hard for me to determine, like, is this something that is, you know, a pattern that we need to start addressing? Or is this something that we can do some educating at home and gather some tools and things like that, because it is hard. It's hard Mm -hmm. because you see your kid wrestling. And I think for me as someone with, um, you know, issues with mental illness to watch my kid and think, oh my gosh, is she going to deal with the same stuff? Um, It becomes a really hard place for a mom to make those decisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's good to kind of get some, some real information on it. What are some things that you would encourage parents if they decide they need to start looking for professional help? Where do you start? The Anxiety and Depression Association of America has a really nice infographic on like how to find the right therapist. Um, And so that's what they call it, finding the right therapist. And so you can look at some different issues, like are they in driving distance? Do they offer in-person or telehealth? If I want, I really want them to be seen in person, or I really prefer that we have the convenience or the social distancing of online. Asking them if they treat kids, adults, or both, kind of what their experience and their approach to treating anxiety is, as well as kind of things about the fit. So one thing that's really important is the right therapist for your child is going to be the one that they're willing to try to spend some time with. They're willing to open up a little bit and that they feel comfortable with. So they need to use the right tools and therapy that are evidence-based that we know to work and to help kids, but coupled with the warmth and the interpersonal skills to kind of meet that child where they are, to draw them in and using different types of play therapy, not only for the purpose of what play therapy can open up, but also to engage them. So the right therapist is going to be really willing to get down on your child's level, whatever their personality is, whatever their age there is. And for them to be able to tell you, like, this is what I do and don't treat. I only work with kids older than this age. 
And so those are some really important questions to ask the potential therapist. The other thing that I really emphasize because of the type of work that I do is the role of the parent. As a parent, and even before I was a parent, I felt it was very important to involve moms and dads and the whole family system as needed into therapy sessions. It doesn't mean you all participate every time, but it means that you need to have an awareness of what's going on and a role in the approach to therapy. Because you're with your child 24-7, you know them best, and if anything's going to get practiced between today and our next session, then it's really up to the parent, if they're young, to make sure there's opportunity for that or to be encouraging them to do it or to be practicing an activity together. And as they get older, you can kind of discuss with a teen and a parent, what do you see as both of your roles, but keeping the parent aware of the skills that you're trying to teach. This has been something because I haven't, I've done counseling on my own, but I haven't gotten therapy or counseling for my kids. So this is kind of for both of you. What has it looked like, Emily, as a mom, to walk alongside your daughter through her therapy sessions? Like, do you sit in on them or do you, does she do them on her own? And then the therapist or counselor meets with you. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that, what does that look like? Cause I don't even know what to expect. So we have a variety of people on her mental health team. So we started with her pediatrician and then we, I never can say this word, a diagnostician, like that's a difficult word to say. That was when she was kind of assessed and evaluated. And then from there, we started doing play therapy. And so play therapy for us has been happening since I think second grade. And I am in, you know, weekly communication with her therapist via email. And then she goes in for probably the first 45 minutes of her session. And she's just one-on-one with her therapist. And then I come in for the last 15 by myself. Like we're mostly one one-on-one there have been some times where we have done together where maybe there were issues or something we needed to talk about as a team so yeah so I kind of get some feedback Um, I give the therapist feedback we talk about maybe areas where she's struggling what kind of tactics or tools the therapist is using sort of what she uncovers during the therapy session and then you know she really gives me encouragement sometimes like sometimes as a As a mom who is parenting a child walking through this, you need to have like there's a little bit of therapy that happens between me and her, you know, that she's kind of helping equip and encourage me as a mom for me to do my best by my daughter. I will like emphasize as well kind of what she said that like finding that good fit for your kiddo and for yourself is like super duper important because if your kiddo is not feeling comfortable or isn't therapy isn't something they look forward to then you're not really going to make a ton of progress by going you know and my daughter loves like loves her therapist and and really looks forward and enjoys her time with her and I can see just the way you know, we feel kind of lighter when we come out of therapy sometimes. That happens to my daughter, too. This episode is brought to you by Fort Worth Moms, an online parenting resource to encourage and inspire moms in North Texas and all over the world. 
So here is something I, I would say I did not struggle with anxiety until I would say I well until 2012 when my mother passed away I suddenly what like I felt like out of nowhere started having panic attacks which you know is a form of anxiety it's a result of grief you know all those things but I even like since then I'm just not a person whose anxiety paralyzes them or gets out of control so it's been interesting that that's my perspective and this is my reality. And then I'm parenting a daughter who has a, like a different experience of the world of the world. And I am guilty of this. And I am still trying to work out of this mindset of saying things like, oh, she has anxiety as if I'm saying, oh, she has a kidney stone or she has a headache, you know, like, mm -hmm. and I have realized through this journey with my daughter unra unraveling, I guess, just these like cultural beliefs about what a clinical anxious person is. And I just wondered if you could like, you kind of have already spoken to it a bit saying, hello, everybody has anxiety. But like, how do you, how would you respond to me if I was the mother of one of your patients? And I'm like, she has anxiety, like she has a headache. How can I dismantle that? Mm, yes. And give us some good language. You mentioned it when I said, you know, everybody has anxiety. So kind of goes back to what is the purpose of anxiety? Anxiety. So if you said she has anxiety, I would say, well, of course she does. Everybody does. And so the reason we do is it's our body's alarm system. It's our natural kind of siren internally that goes off to tell us that something's wrong, something's dangerous, something's unsafe, something's unknown. And the problem is when the alarm goes off, it's a false alarm. It gets tripped by, okay, so my house alarm went off while we were out of the house once and the police came and checked it out and there was no entry in the doors, no nothing disturbed. And then there was a spider hanging right by the camera in the front of our alarm. And so our alarm was tripped for a not true emergency. And so we have these internal systems because if we are or our child is stepping out into the street and then we hear a car whooshing by and they jump backwards, they go, ah, that is your body's alarm system saying, hey, there's something coming, get out of the way. And that's good. Or if you have a test coming up and you're nervous about the test, that's good because it's saying, hey, don't forget to study. The problem with anxiety is when that alarm goes off for kind of no reason or an unnecessary reason, or it goes off too much or too loud. And so when we talk about, oh, she has anxiety, I try to steer away from that. Like, yes, she might have a diagnosis, that might be true, but it's more about how to get your anxiety under control, how to use it, and how to have it not control you. So the other thing I like to do with kids, and I have done with 40-year-olds, is draw your anxiety. So I love the movie Inside Out because it gives us a visual of all the feelings. But anxiety, I imagine my anxiety as a purple fuzzy monster. I have no idea why it's purple or fuzzy, but it's a cute little guy. And he tells me like, oh, don't forget to study or don't forget to pay your bill or look before you cross the street. And what happens with that with kids or adults who have more anxiety than necessary is that little guy gets bigger and bigger and bigger and then it's overwhelming. 
So I talked to kids and parents about trying to get that anxiety back under control so that it's useful and not overwhelming your child. Mm, That's really good. What are some of the tricks or the tips? I know like for us, we have a game kind of that we play when she is not anxious. It's called mountain or molehill. And those are, you know, when she's feeling not anxious and great, we played the game and I'll make up real scenarios and I'll make up silly scenarios. And, you know, and we talk about what is maybe a like an appropriate or a healthy response. And so we can then use that language when she is in more of a, a loud alarm going off. Okay. And so trying to coach her that she can ask herself, okay, is this a mountain? Is this a big alarm? And I need to respond with a big alarm response. Or is this actually a molehill and my response needs to be? molehill like that's kind of like one of our little tricks what are other things you commonly recommend I really like the mountain molehill because you are doing what we would call imaginal exposures so you're practicing the scenarios and what's great about that is that when those things come up in real life she's already practiced some of the answers and some of the coping strategies so one of my answers what can you do is practice so things that make your kids uncomfortable practice them. If you need to do that with a professional to help you figure out what is the right amount of practice or how to set up your practice, then getting some sessions might be a really good strategy. I like to start with deep breaths. That is such a basic skill, but it has such a profound physiological effect. It slows down your heart rate. It calms your muscles It gives you more oxygen to your whole body and to your brain. And so the first thing I do with kids is just taking deep breaths in through your nose for three or four seconds, holding it for three or four seconds if they can, exhaling through pursed lips for six or eight seconds, just really easy and calm. But then with kids, I try to make it more interesting, more fun. So breathing in the smell of your birthday cake, blowing out your birthday candles, Kids come up with all kinds of other things, um, blowing balloons. But when you are trying to collect all different coping skills, the bottom line is the one that works best for your child is the one that works best. So if your child is not so into taking deep breaths, then hugging a stuffed animal might be a better fit for them. Um, So creating a box, like a coping box, where you can put every time you guys think of a new strategy, just writing it down and throwing it in the box. So that when they're having one of those moments where they're feeling really tense and anxious and they don't know what to do, they can pull one out of the box. You can either do the one on the that's written on the paper in the box just to try it out. Or if they go, oh, I don't want to do that one. And they pull another one and they like it and they're willing to do it. I consider that to be success. The other thing is trying to model and teach self-care at an early age. So we know when we are tired, stressed with work, hormonal, hungry, whatever it is, that we handle stress worse. Things that make us anxious make us more anxious. So taking care of ourselves in all those areas helps us be more calm in dealing with those stresses. The same for kids. So when you're teaching kids self-care, I think it's important to help them get the right amount of sleep, And rest. So rest can be like sometimes they're stressed out coming home from school and before jumping right into it, 
watching a show with their comfy pillows and their sleeping bag on the floor, like having a cozy spot. I have a lot of kids who create cozy spots in the corner of their room, in their parents' closet, under the kitchen island, in very interesting areas of the house. But that's when they need that hug and that warmth and that getaway. They have a little spot. Healthy eating. So not being obsessive over what they're eating, but just that you're nourishing your body, you're taking care of your body, so you have the energy to deal with things. And physical activity. Physical activity is really good because when you get moving, it produces those happy hormones and endorphins that help, again, with coping. It's so many, like, I'm like, yes, we do all of these. (laughs) I, I just like everything you say, I'm like, like laughing on the inside, not like in a making fun way, but like, I know what you mean. <laughs> like I am living this way. And I'm frantically taking notes. Yes. Like, uh, like, yes. <laughs> what do you think about structure and routine uh, for kids who are highly sensitive? It helps a lot. I think structure and routine are very important for all kids because it teaches them what to expect and that their environment is safe. We also have to teach them, we're also responsible as their parents for teaching them flexibility. So I'm gonna give you a non-answer. You need both. You need to intentionally give them a lot of structure, but then you need to push them out of their comfort zone and change things up. So when we do practices, when we practice something, a situation that usually elicits a lot of anxiety, I like to do the smallest thing that they can handle first. So instead of doing it all at once, I do it little by little, which a lot of therapists will do. And so I'll make one small change. So if you usually go home a certain way and you get a certain snack on the way home and then you practice your instrument and then you blah, blah, blah. Sometimes I would switch it up, just one aspect, get a different snack instead of the same place or go a different way. So a small change, but teaching them flexibility. So in addition to setting them up for being able to anticipate things, they have to practice those things. They have to practice approaching the things that make them anxious. Otherwise, that thing or that situation continues to kind of have control over them, power over them versus them having power over it. Just kind of shifting gears because this is rolling around in my head. But, you know, we mentioned a little bit like the stigma of maybe counseling or therapy or mental health. I think there's this idea that like, if my kid needs therapy, I've broken them. So you've been a bad mom. I've done something wrong or the, the thought of going to a therapist and having them be alone with your kid and your kid, tell them everything. And then you have to sit down and hear all the ways that you've ruined your kid. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's just kind of this, maybe a level of fear or pride maybe that goes along with this stigma of like, well, my kid doesn't need therapy because they're fine. They're not broken or whatever. But what would you, how would you respond to that kind of mentality? I wonder. One thing that's helped is that therapy has been made more acceptable by a lot of celebrities getting involved, that it's been a little bit more available, a little bit more popular. I think that there's good and bad things about that, but I would I would maybe try to help people think of examples in their life, whether it's friends, family members, celebrities who've done this. And so it doesn't seem quite so foreign and it doesn't seem quite so unusual to them. 
The other thing that I find helpful is that sometimes just getting more of like a coaching session feels less clinical than calling it therapy and getting tools as parents that you can utilize at home that you're, you don't have to send your kid to therapy, but you can use these tools as a parent to help encourage them to overcome their fears. So those are two ways. The other thing is I say, you know, that is your own kind of assumption, your own thought that comes from somewhere and your own biases and your own anxieties about, I don't want people to think I'm a bad mom. I don't want people to think there's something wrong with my child. I don't want the therapist to think poorly of me if she discloses some story that I'm really embarrassed about. And I would say that those are anxieties as are normal and everybody has them, but that you're letting your own anxieties hold you back from trying something new. And I think if you push yourself to trying it and make a goal, make a small goal and say, I'm not decided I'm going to commit to this one way or another, but I'm willing to demonstrate for my child trying new things, trying hard things, and just try it out. Because if you have a really good fit and you say, this is not what I expected, this is much more comfortable, then you try it again, you do it again, and you build on that success. If it's not for you, I think that's okay too. Yeah, I remember it was probably the third or fourth session and we were in a a more kind of critical season with our daughter. And I just remember ultimately like breaking down sobbing with the play therapist and just, you know, finally asking and admitting what I was most afraid of. I'm like, have we done something to her that has caused this? Like, am I unknowingly doing something that is damaging her in this, like in a, a very significant way? I mean, the answer to that is yes. <laughs> like we know what like, we're all messing up. Our yeah, we're, we are all making yeah. mistakes that we are blind to and that will have negative consequences for our kids. But no, all of this is not my fault, you know, and that I have not like, you know, done something terrible, um, you know, to her to her heart. There is a part of jumping off maybe this ledge it can feel that way it's not actually that way in reality once you do it but it can feel that way and it also there's an element that also means that that you have to be honest and vulnerable too and that can feel scary enough to just put it bluntly it can feel scary enough that you wouldn't do what was best for your kid yeah you know yeah. and and that's like a hard thing to say. And I am saying it because I thought and felt that. Mm -hmm. And I had to get to a point where I was willing, like, it's not only opening the doors about my lack of parenting skills, or the struggles my kids were having, but it was also meaning I had to open my heart and kind of show my therapist what was in there, mm -hmm. you know, because I have to do that to be able to be on board, you know, with helping my kiddo. Yeah, definitely. And it is, I mean, it's, it's a vulnerable place. You're right. It's not just your kid who is working through these things, but, but you as well. And, and you even talked about it, Emily, that the things that were paralyzing your daughter were paralyzing your whole family right? and kind of bringing everything to a halt. And so it's a family work. I wish we could get to the point to where when we say, like being honest and vulnerable, that that is not a bad thing. Like being honest and vulnerable is your goal. 
Mm-hmm. Like that's what we should be like striving for, you know, well, not to be so scary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like in our somehow society or twisted up minds, like, ooh, saying vulnerable is kind of like a negative word, mm-hmm. but it's not like it's actually the best place to go. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I got one last thing I want to talk about. Okay. With you, my friend, how do we get our children's educators, coaches, principals, how do we get them informed about and on board making accommodations and understanding the quote unquote anxious child? So baby steps is the answer because you're right. The kids with anxiety are not the troublemakers. They're not the ones catching the teacher's attention because they're not failing the class. They're not distracting others. They're the ones who are sitting quietly at their desk who seem to be on task. They may actually be doing the work or they may be caught up in their own anxiety and not doing the work, but they're not disturbing anyone else. And so they're harder to notice. And so developing a relationship with the teacher is so important. Just the same baby steps that you would do when you're coaching your kid on how to be more brave at school. It's the same thing. You have to like do it very gradually with the teacher. In addition to developing that relationship slowly and persistently, finding out from your school if there's an individual education plan or a 504 plan that might be applicable to a diagnosis if your child has a diagnosis. Offering schools opportunities to do workshops with professionals, bringing in materials, being just willing to share, spending a little more time with the classroom or the teachers or the coaches or the administration to offer them these tools or to help connect them with the right people to give them the tools. So I think, you know, doing it slowly and gradually is is a big part of it because you're asking someone to do something out of their comfort zone. And so making a small change, they're more likely to be willing to do and to hear you. Asking them to parent or asking them to teach in a totally different style is going to be really overwhelming and they're probably going to disagree with you. And then, you know, facilitating whatever tools that you can any resources that you can to make it easier on the teachers and the coaches. All right, Dr. Criado, I know that you have an Instagram that you post a lot of really good tips and ideas on there. Where can our listeners find you? They can find me at at Dr. So D-R period, Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-E-N, Criado, C-R-I-A-D-O. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. And you can check out our show notes for more resources and information. Thank you again, Dr. Criado. Thank you guys for having me. As always, visit fwmoms.com. To see the notes from this show, including links to products and content mentioned in this episode. And one more time, just in case you missed it, fwmoms.com. Fort Worth Moms.